Just a quick note before we start, between minute two and minute five, you'll hear a little bit of extra background noise that we unfortunately weren't able to cut out, but after minute five, the sound improved significantly. Thanks. Hello everyone and welcome to Chewing Scenery, the podcast where two professional stage managers ruin your favorite movies and TV shows about theater by picking apart their inaccuracies. I'm Sandy Becker. And I'm Katerina Sekirko. Uh, And today we're doing a movie called Opening Night. It was an adventure. Yes. (laughs) First of all, I want to apologize for making you sit through this film. Because it's bad. I forgive you. It certainly gave us a lot to talk about. (laughs) Yes, I think this is the most notes I have yet. So you're the one who introduced me to this movie. Not that I blame you for it. (laughs) You can. I, I'll take it. And I blame uh, my good friend Melanie McNeil, who is a wonderful person and designer and sadistic, apparently, because she told me to watch this movie. It was last year. I was staying at my sister's place nannying for her kids because there was no work. And she told me about this movie. And we I don't remember how it came up because I talked about how bad theater is portrayed in movies. And she said, oh, you want to see how bad theater can be portrayed in movies? <laughs> Try this. <laughs> And so one night after the kids went to bed, I went downstairs and I watched it by myself and I had to not vocalize so I didn't wake anybody up and look crazy. (sighs) Yeah. And I was just horrified by it. And so it's been in the back of my mind the whole time starting this podcast, the whole idea behind this podcast, this movie (laughs) has been in the back of my mind. Yes. And then I told you about it and made you watch it. It's on Netflix if anybody else wants to watch it. Don't you think it's, like, really cheesy when people just, like, randomly break into song? The movie we watched was Opening Night from 2016, directed by Isaac Rentz and written by Jerry DeLeon and Greg Lisi. Um, okay, so the movie follows Nick, played by Topher Grace, through an evening, which is opening night of the Broadway show One Hit Wonderland. Nick used to be a performer, but his big Broadway debut was a disaster, leaving him very gun-shy and forcing him to pivot to stage management, we think? Not really clear in the movie. Yeah, we'll talk about that later, but that's the big question, yeah. which is what exactly is his job? <laughs> yes. But con- continue not to derail this summary <laughs> before it even starts. Well, this is the problem with this movie. Uh, so this particular evening, everything is going wrong. The star, Brooke, who is played by Anne Heche, is injured, and the understudy, Chloe, who is played by Alona Tal must go on at the last second. Nick and Chloe used to be a couple, but Nick broke up with her out of fear of commitment, and last night, she slept with J.C. Chazé, who is the star of the play, and he is playing himself in the film. Um, There is also a new dancer who's been brought in, and we'll talk about that more, and two chorus members are competing for his sexual affection. And those two chorus members are... Oh, what are their character names I wrote down? It's Malcolm Diggs. and Brandy. Malcolm, thank you. I knew Brandy. Uh, Malcolm <laughs> and Brandy, played by Tay Diggs and Leslie Margarita. Finally, over the course of the evening, Nick comes to realize that he needs to follow his dreams and interrupts the show to win Chloe back through song. Did I miss anything? <laughs> That's well, pretty much it. <laughs> you know, like, there's some disasters that happen along the way, like Brooks injury and subsequent accidentally being dosed with ecstasy 
but I think we'll get to that as we discuss this movie. Yes, throughout the movie, he's also dogged by Goldmeyer, I believe is the character's name. Yes. Uh, played by Rob Riggle, who is, uh, again, not really clear, but I think the producer. Yes, I think that's, he's the producer. Anything else we have to talk about before we just dive into this Let's nonsense? just dive in. Okay. So, at the start of the movie, we start in one of your favorite features, a apartment owned by somebody who works in theater. Right. So what did you think of the shittiness or non-shittiness of his apartment? You don't see much of it, but it looked like a pretty shitty apartment. I bought the apartment. Yes. I thought, it, I mean, it was hard to say because, you know, you only really see one room, but I think his dresser is in his living room. Yes, it definitely seems to be an all-in-one room, a, like, narrow and tall space that Nick is living in. Yeah. And it's also cluttered, not with headshots, luckily, but with posters and other ephemera, including, very funnily, a close-up on what would be a playbill, like, with the yellow heading of the Broadway playbill, except it says playbooklet, because... <laughs> I guess they didn't want to infringe on Playbill's copyright. Broadway wants nothing to do with this film, and I don't blame them. <laughs> Understandable. Hysterical. Yeah, I, I buy it, and you know, I certainly know a lot of people who work in theater who have posters from shows that they've done up all over the place, and and so he's rushing because he's presumably late for work. We'll find out just how late when he gets there. He almost left without turning off the TV, which really pissed me off. I was like, "You're if you're paying an electricity bill," but then he came back and turned it off, so I felt better. That's true. Although maybe he would be leaving it on so that his place doesn't get broken into. Do people still do that? Oh, I don't know. But on the TV is playing an ad for the show he's going to. And it's called One Hit Wonderland. And it's opening on Broadway tonight. Featuring J.C. Chazé of NSYNC fame. And I do think One Hit Wonderland, it does seem like the sort of show that could be made. A jukebox musical that just is a collection of different one-hit wonder hits loosely strung together with a storyline vaguely based on a Christmas carol, sort of? <laughs> sort of. There's a little bit of It's a Wonderful Life mixed in there, too. I right. have that question. But yeah, I, I feel like that's the only way that this movie succeeds, is that it, that it was a decent send-up of that type of musical. Yes. Like, it's way over the top and cheesy and ridiculous, but I think the movie intends it to be. And it, like, I sort I almost bought, I didn't buy that this musical is playing on Broadway, but if they had said it in Vegas, I 100% would have thought that this musical is not that far-fetched. Yeah. I mean, there are <laughs> mascots and things <laughs> that are a little bit weird, but whatever. And especially, especially because it's J.C. Chazé, I was like, this is such a Vegas musical. And I mean, I feel like you've done... I haven't I've worked on any of these. <laughs> I have. I've worked on some, to be unnamed, jukebox musicals that aren't the work of a specific artist, but like choose a very loose theme to string together segments of popular hits that people recognize. I've definitely worked on a couple of those. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but not on Broadway. No, but in a large, large enough theater. But uh, yeah, they're, they're <laughs> very, very popular they tend to draw big crowds because people want to hear the music that they know. And, and it's a surefire cash cow, generally, when yes. people produce these. So all the more reason for the producer to be stressed out if he doesn't think it's going to go well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so then Nick arrives at the stage door and he runs into Malcolm. And they have some really disgusting 
conversation about sex. These actors do nothing but talk about sex. According to this movie, all actors are whores, y'all. It's really, like, it's gross. The amount of time they spend talking about who's fucking who and who fucked who and who went where with who. And, like, it's just, it's gross. Yeah. And not that there's never, like, theater is a more casual workplace in terms of talking about sex than most other workplaces, Mm -hmm. but still, this movie is really over the top about that. (laughs) Yeah, it just sounds like every single party that these people go to is an orgy. And not that there's anything wrong with that, (laughs) but don't bring it into the workplace. Yeah, it seems very unprofessional. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's not the only thing that seems very unprofessional in this Broadway show, um, I will also say Nick is already wearing a headset when he comes to the theater. Uh, yeah, I mean, some stage managers do bring their own headsets. That's that true. But do they wear them no. to the theater? <laughs> no, that's true. They don't. And then we find out that it's 10 minutes to show. And what the hell? <laughs> Why is Nick arriving to work 10 minutes before curtain? What? Yes. <laughs> Okay, so I'm gonna I'm working on the assumption that he's meant to be the stage manager because at some point, when he is threatened with being fired because everything's going wrong, Rob Riggle says uh, you'll be stage managing and mentions some horrible situation, and so yes. that leads me to believe that we are supposed to believe that he's the stage manager, and that sends me into a spiral of despair like I can't even. Well, cause... I might have a way out of your spiral of despair. <laughs> okay. Okay, so. I will say the IMDb description calls him the production manager. I also so saw that, while, but he's not doing that either. <laughs> he's not really doing that either. And then we see over the course of the night that he isn't calling most of the cues. Like, he's no. free to wander into the dressing rooms and not be at the calling desk calling the cues, which we talked about in a previous episode. Like, during the show, the stage manager is really tied to their book, because especially for a big musical, you'd have hundreds and hundreds of cues to call. Like, every couple of seconds, you'd be calling another cue. Right. So you're not free to actually go backstage and hang out with people or deal with issues in person because you're tied to your desk. Right. But... But he calls cues at the beginning. But he does call cues at the beginning. Also confusing. It's so confusing. But in terms of his role, there are Broadway shows that have a stage management team that includes a production stage manager and one or two stage managers and assistant stage managers. Right. The production stage manager is the overall supervisor, and the calling of the show rotates between the production stage manager, the stage manager, or multiple stage managers if they have multiple stage managers. Yeah. So I'm like, maybe he's the production stage manager and the stage manager is calling the show that night. Uh, That is, uh, sure, I'm willing to be generous and give it that. That's the only explanation I could think of. And I have limited experience in commercial theater. I've literally worked on one commercial theater show, which had a production stage manager and a stage manager. Right. So I'm like, okay, that's at least technically possible. Yeah. Okay. I sure. I'll go. <laughs> but the way, but the way they handle it still doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but he still should be there much before ten minutes to the curtain. Yes. And the other thing that drives me up the wall is they say 10 minutes to curtain and both of the actors who are just hanging out at stage door, one of them goes, shit, I got to do my vocal warm up. I'm like, what? (laughs) This actor is still like, the the actors are also just arriving. 
typically, unless there's extra stuff to do, which often there is extra stuff to do if you have a lot of makeup and wig stuff and, and various things. But typically, an actor is called half an hour before curtain. That's generally the standard. And maybe they came half an hour beforehand and then stepped out to hang out outside the door. Also possible, but like how irresponsible that you haven't even started warming up at 10 minutes before the show. These actors, all they do is talk about sex and they don't do their jobs. And then they start warming up and Nick, who has wandered off, comes back holding a lighting fixture for no reason. (laughs) um, (laughs) And comes back and yells at them to stop warming up. I was like, what kind of stage manager are you that you don't want the actors to warm up? He's like, that's so annoying. (laughs) What is the matter with you? They seem to be deliberately trying to annoy him by doing those like, yeah, 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 warm ups. Sure. Like, (laughs) sure, is not the most pleasant thing to listen to, but it's just a warm up. Like, it's totally normal. Yeah. Also, this guy's a complete, like, Nick is a complete asshole because he, like, the number of times during this during working on this musical, he says that he hates musical theater. Like, think it, but don't say it out loud. There's lots of technicians who don't like musical theater, and that's fine. It's cheesy and weird, and I'm not a huge fan either, but don't say it to the musical theater actors that you're working with. That's rude. And not ten minutes before opening night. (laughs) Yes. He comes back mysteriously carrying a lamp and a clipboard. (laughs) And I think he was, I was holding the clipboard when he got there. I think the clipboard oh, that's is not possible. But I'll just say that in Broadway and in professional theater, there's a pretty strict division between what stage managers can do and what technicians can do. Right. So in IA, which is the stagehands union house, stage managers can't just be handling technical equipment. No. In a small non-professional venue or some small venues like uh, incorporate some technical work with the stage management work, but in a Broadway house, there's no chance that a stage manager would be touching a lighting fixture. No, and also uh, the also the other big question is why would somebody need to be carrying a light at this point, ten minutes before the show? The light should already be hung. If you have this light, it was just what lying around backstage and you're putting it away. Like I just, it was. A very weird piece of business just to have him holding a light for no reason. Like, it just definitely caught my eye and was confusing. It's one of the many moments where they sort of gesture towards the reality of doing a show, but in a really nonsensical way that makes you really wonder why they're making a movie about theater if they don't really understand it or want to get the details right. Yeah. And the tone of this movie doesn't make any sense either. Like it's a, it's a comedy obviously, but yeah, I don't know how to get into that. It starts out like theater is stupid. Like there's a lot of like theater is stupid in this movie. And then at the end it gets really earnest and it just like, it doesn't, it totally doesn't know what it is. This film. Which I think we found that with the last movie too, with Stage Fright. Like, there's a lot. <laughs> what is with this? Yeah. There's movies that don't know what they are. There's moments of truth that seems to come from an affectionate inside perspective about theater, but then there's other moments that are so wrong that it's just like, what is going on? Like, what are you doing with this? Yeah. Yeah. Good point. And like, again, I don't know anything about the writing team or the producing team of this, but these actors. A number of them are, like, Tay Diggs for sure is a Broadway guy. 
he originated Benny and Rent, I think. Like, he's he's a Broadway guy. The cast knows what theater is, or some of the cast, I don't know. I can't say anything about Topher Grace and Rob Riggle. But I, I can't believe that a lot of these actors, there's a lot of dancing in the film, and I can't believe that a lot of these actors are not Broadway people. Yeah. It's very confusing. So one of the elements that is sort of a nod to what actually happens in theater, but is so wrong that happens in this scene is the calls before the show starts. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's going around to every room, calling a different number of minutes. And then like, he's calling every single minute. Yes. <laughs> he walks in every says... room and goes 10 minutes and then nine minutes and then eight minutes. Like for fuck's sake. He says, Guys, we have like 10 minutes to the show and nine minutes to curtain everybody. And this is not a drill. I need you to report to the stage and start getting into places. That was the first place I screamed. I told you I screamed twice in the first four minutes of the film. That one made me scream because that's not a places call. And also then after that announcement... He gives like an eight minute and a seven minute. And I was like, wait a second. That was a places call. Why are you calling places 10 minutes before the show starts? People have shit to do. Yes. Hang on. So for people who don't know, I'm going to briefly talk about how you would normally give a places call for theater. So before the show, the stage manager is the one kind of responsible for keeping an eye on the time and letting people know at certain preset standard intervals how much time there is until the start of the show usually there's a call which is half an hour please and a call which is 15 minutes sometimes a 10 minute depending on the show i don't do a 10 minute but i know some people do a five minute call a places call which is two minutes before the show starts which is the last one and then there's a standby for the start of the show which is right before the show starts right and in every other movie we watched so far the places call has been way too late in this movie it was way too early yes and it is it can be stressful to get people to places in time yep. but there's an established rhythm of when places happen and because actors have so many things to do in that half hour before the show You know, they have to get into costume, they have to do hair and makeup, they have to warm up. There's no expectation that they're on stage ready to go eight minutes before the show starts, because that's time that they need to use to do other things. And every actor is used to, at places, going to places, or at least hopefully. Sometimes people struggle with managing their time around getting to places on time but that's something that you can address rather than just calling places eight minutes before the show starts which is (laughs) not a thing and telling them that this is not a drill they know they're they know that there's a show (laughs) gonna happen like (laughs) totally yeah and calling places eight minutes before the show when some of your actors are still outside and haven't even started warming up let alone putting on makeup and costume and This one actress who hasn't started putting on her makeup and costume, when we do see her in makeup and costume, it is elaborate. Yes. (laughs) Like, you did not put that on in eight minutes. There's, like, a full, she's in full wig makeup. Like, it's really, it's a very intense costume. She's dressed like Mozart, basically. Yeah. Like, that's just, I was so annoyed about that, too. It was like, she, she was there for an hour putting that stuff on before... And then, so now he's on headset and he's talking to 
people, other members of the stage management team or whatever is happening. And somebody tells him that one of the background dancers called in sick. And his response is, call Wicked and have them send over one of their spares. And that's the second time I screamed (laughs) in the first four minutes of the film. Yeah. First of all, they're not called background dancers. No. (laughs) They would be ensemble or dancer or chorus. Yeah. And they don't, you just, you don't just call in sick and we don't find out about it 10 minutes before the show. Yeah. That's the whole point of the half hour call is so that by the half hour, you are sure that all the people who need to be in the building are in the building. Yeah. And you will, and if somebody is sick, sick enough to go out of the show, which happens, that that's like, you usually find out about that by like noon of that day. Like it's not, <laughs> this is not like nobody calls in sick at the last minute. Unless they've yeah. been in an accident on their way to the theater. Like, yeah. Yes. And, I mean, we've discussed the whole understudy thing before. And we see in this show that there are understudies because yes. Chloe is understudying the lead female role. But for the ensemble, there would almost certainly be a swing which right. is a person who learns multiple ensemble parts so that they can fill in different ensemble roles. Yes. Almost certainly if it is a Broadway musical. Yeah, and you've rehearsed that and it's planned for and everybody sort of knows the drill. If this person goes out, this is what happens. So, yes. And the idea that Wicked, the musical, just has a bunch of dancers sitting around in a room <laughs> that you can just call them and have them send someone over <laughs> ten minutes before the show starts. And they don't know. Like, like it's just... And this happens in movies all the time where like people just assume that musicians and dancers and singers just know all choreography ever. And they can just show up and just step in and not have any rehearsal or be taught how to do anything. Yeah, and that really varies wildly by field in that if it was a musician who went out, you could probably call in a different musician who knew how to play the guitar and they could talk with the musical director and they could make their way through it in some way. Sure, because they have sheet music. Or in opera, I've definitely worked on shows where somebody got sick the day of the show And they were able to find somebody else who knew the role because there's like a repertoire of well-known roles within Mm -hmm. opera. So you could bring someone in to sing it that day. But a new musical? Not possible. (laughs) Not Choreography? Not possible. So any credibility that this film had with me is gone now. And we're still only five minutes into the movie. Less than. (laughs) It slows down. Like, like my rage slows down as the movie progresses because yeah. it gets to be less about the play and more about people's feelings. So they send over this guy, Xavier, who barely speaks English and can apparently just jump in and be a dancer in this musical. So he's on his way. While he's on his way, Topher Grace, or Nick, keeps walking around backstage. Um, an ASM comes up to him in tears because a light bulb has blown. That is not something to cry about. <laughs> but... but- one, I did like Lauren Lapkus's performance as the nervous ASM. Uh-huh. And that's definitely a type that exists. Oh, I yeah. will say. Oh, sure. Yeah, if she's an apprentice, she's scared to give bad news to people. She's like, yeah, okay, sure. Totally. But it's a little much. He also 
calls the bulb a ball of sunshine when he's radioing to somebody to change the bulb. And I'm like, I'm not a lighting technician, but I'm pretty sure that's not a thing. I've never heard a lighting person say ball of sunshine. It's a very important bulb because it's the bulb that dots the eye and whatever. So they're upset about that. But again, like they're, they're, the lighting technicians do checks before... Mm-hmm. The five, like we're at the five minute call now. If a bulb is blown at the five minute call, probably it's not getting replaced. Yes, unless it's the only light fixture in the entire design. Like, yes. <laughs> like it's just it's probably we're gonna live with a, the eye is not gonna have a dot for yeah. this performance, or at least until intermission. But he does talk her down pretty nicely. He does have like a I know you get like this in these moments, but I'm gonna need you to focus and say the problem. Like he's he shows for a second that he is competent in that moment. Yeah. There's moments where he communicates with people on the team in a certain way that I'm like, oh, you sort of get what this job is like. Yeah. Sort of. Sort of. So the backstage world that he's walking through in this section is like a weird mixture of some very truthful touches and some very not truthful touches. <laughs> sure. Like I found he walks through what I assume is a crew room, which is just like a really battered old space with a disco ball hanging from the ceiling and like a battered metal desk and some schedules on totally. the wall. And I'm like, yep, that definitely looks like a crew room. And I've definitely been to crew rooms that have disco balls hanging from them. Yep. But he also walks through the wardrobe shop and, like, somebody shows him a piece of paper and somebody he points to something. Him? I know. It's like somebody shows him a draw, like a, a drawing. I'm like, why yeah. are you looking at costume drawings right now? <laughs> Out of all, it's such a tiny little moment and it is so not the point of the film and it's such a nothing moment. But it drove me nuts. <laughs> Yes. Why are you? No, nobody's looking at drawings right now. The the actors, if the actors' costumes are still in the drawing phase, then we're nowhere <laughs> near opening night. Get out of my face with that drawing. And it's one of those things where it would be very easy to do a version of that scene with a stage manager walking through backstage before opening that is equally full of interest and excitement and things happening, but is in a way that's true to life rather mm. than adding in him carrying a lamp and him looking at a costume sketch, which would not happen. Yeah. Uh, and then the bass player comes and, out, comes and asks him for weed <laughs> at the five minute call. I mean, <laughs> it's not real, but it's not unheard of. <laughs> it's not unheard of, but at the five minute call, <laughs> and the person he's going through to score is the stage manager? <laughs> like, I don't buy it. I don't buy that yeah. for one second. No, I don't buy it either. And then Nick, like, actively makes an effort to find him weed. But it is a exaggeration of something that is at least related to reality. Sure. <laughs> Maybe? I don't know. Sure. I, Maybe yeah, I'm no, giving it too much credit. That's not to say I haven't worked with musicians who have been high the whole yeah. time I've known them. <laughs> but... <laughs> Like, I, I don't know that we need to spend a lot of time focusing on this bass player, but he shows up throughout the rest of the film and he's always, first of all, he's never in the pit. It's during the show and he's never in the pit playing music and it, it gets more and more elaborate and then he wants ecstasy and then he's got a huge bong that he's built in the, like, it's just, it's completely insane. Yeah, that was definitely one of the 
side plots throughout the movie that I definitely did not care about. It was my least favorite. It was <laughs> yeah, like it was the not. ongoing joke of him trying to score drugs. Yeah. Also, I'm going to talk about two little technical details while we're still in the stage of wandering around backstage is that both Nick and at least one other person backstage has backstage passes on lanyards around their neck. Okay. Also, I think not a thing in theater. Like, no. again, I haven't worked on Broadway, but I really don't think that's a thing, is it? Yeah, I don't think so. Everybody knows you arrive at the stage door. There's usually security at the stage door. So if you're trying to get in and nobody knows who you are, you're not going to be allowed in. You sign in when you get there. But everybody, yes. once you're back there, everybody knows who you are, especially if you're the production manager or the stage manager or whoever Nick is. Yeah, so I saw that and rolled my eyes hard. Also, he continually is talking on headset but on radio yeah oh this walkie headset thing drove me up the wall he's got a walkie and he's got a headset yes which i think are the same thing like i think the head is are they the same thing that the headset is attached to the walkie because at one point he gives the walkie talkie to someone else yes which i was just like what and now how do you communicate because it seems like when he wants to talk to somebody he has to use the walkie and i guess other people are using their walkie and he's hearing that through his headset Yes, because people do. Like, it is possible to get a headset attachment for a walkie-talkie. Totally. When I worked the film festival, that's what we have. Oh, we have little, but we have, like, a little microphone attached to the headset. But people don't use walkie-talkies backstage at theaters. No. I mean, not never, but it is not standard at all. There's no. a different wireless system for communication because the stage manager and many other people on the crew will have a headset and a pack that allows you to communicate with the other people on headset, but it's not a walkie-talkie. No. It's a different wireless system. So all the moments where there's that crackle of static when someone starts to talk, I'm yeah. like... That's not what that is. And it's yet another thing where they sort of gesture to something, but they're, in this case, I think, importing something from film Mm -hmm. into theater. Yeah, yeah. (sighs) Again, it's so small, (laughs) but I'm like, you're so close to getting something right, but you're not getting the details right, especially in something where... The entire focus is on this limited amount of time backstage at a theater. Like, it's not mm-hmm. one small part of a bigger plot. Like, right. that Alfred Hitchcock stage fright we watched. It's like, this is the entirety of the plot of the movie is this limited time backstage at opening night. Yeah, so just, like, pay some attention to the details. One detail that I did like is that we see Nick climbing a ladder, holding his clipboard in his mouth. Which is kind of gross, but it is a real thing that (laughs) stage managers often have to climb ladders. Stage managers are almost always carrying a clipboard, so you have to do some sort of weird juggle where you (laughs) put it under one arm or put it in your mouth so that your hands are free to climb the ladder. That was one moment where I'm like, okay, I get it. And then we start to meet actors. And and there's, there's a sort of a string of actors coming to him with problems. And first... Brandy. Brandy comes and demands that Malcolm be fired and we don't know why and she won't say why and she's this long string of insults and that's her entire shtick is that she comes up with colorful insults for people and it turns out that 
Malcolm slept with her boyfriend last night, and there's all the, this drama, and I mean, not that I've been in, not that I've not been in a situation where somebody had a tantrum and demanded somebody else be fired, because I have, <laughs> but again, five minutes before the curtain, he's not getting fired right now. Maybe we can have this conversation later. There's an actress who says that she's pregnant and she wants to take breaks in the middle of dance numbers and that that's a problematic situation because he's constantly yelling at her that she's only three days pregnant. Then there's a very, very sweaty actor who is constantly needing her armpits blow-dried and a whining actor crying because his pet marmoset died. I like. Yes. It's just, it's not, it's casting actors in a really unpleasant light. Yeah. There are no likable performers in this show. There is nobody yeah. who Nick likes backstage, which is irritating to me. Except for his ex-girlfriend, who he's still kind of weirdly hanging around and casting glances at and getting huffy when she has conversations or might hook up with another man. Right. So terrible. So terrible. On his part. Anyway, they depict actors in such a childish and offensive way mm-hmm. that i mean i guess they're doing it for comedy like the whole point of comedy is to humorously play up and exaggerate negative qualities but i really don't like it basically i hate no. that stereotype of actors and i don't think it's true no I, it, well this is and this is the thing about the crossover between film and theater is because I feel like theater actors, film actors are sort of trained and conditioned to not do anything for themselves. And they're treated like children a lot of the time. And I think they sometimes can be known to rise to the occasion and act the way that they're treated. Mm. And in theater, actors are expected to be much more self-sufficient. There's not enough money to have a body man on you. There's not enough money to have, you know, like people around you doing for you. So actors that come out of theater tend to be, uh, I don't want to say better behaved, that sounds, but like tend to be much more self-sufficient, much more together in my experience. Yeah. It's a yucky stereotype that sort of, I sort of, I understand why people have this thought in their brains and I understand where the stereotype comes from. And again, it's not to say that there are not some actors who are whiny children, but it's not the rule. It's definitely the exception to the rule. But luckily, Tay Diggs has drugs for the SM to deliver to the bassist. That's nice. <laughs> That's one way that he's helpful. Yeah. One thing I did like is that Brooke, the older lead actress in the show, I like, and there was an element of reality with how jaded she was about the show. Sure. How kind of she'd worked in shows in the past that she had like dug deep and given it her all. But at this point, she's not really giving it her all for this one hit Wonderland show. Sure. She's just kind of okay about that. I'm like, okay, I get that. Yeah, also, there's so much stuff about her being like old and over the oh, hill. Oh my god, I know. And she's there's gorgeous. like, for sure, she's <laughs> so gorgeous. She looks beautiful and young. And, you know, there is ageism in theater, as there yeah. is in Hollywood and plenty of other industries. But the way they play it up just does not seem to accord with the way she actually looks. Yeah, I know. Like, if you're going to play that up, then you need to make her look old. 
Yes. Or hire an old actor. I mean, it's sort of, I think it, I think part of that is a little bit self-referential because Anne Heche has sort of had, like, right. she's had a big downturn in terms of fame and she obviously has had some personal issues that have been publicized and all that stuff. So I think that might have been, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Anne Heche has right, been. Like, true. I think that might be, but still, it didn't really play. Yeah. They also try to get Nick to deal with a mic problem, which again, that's crew member that's not for the stage manager but it was very funny and again a good example of something based in reality being exaggerated was the over enthusiastic props guy played by paul Shearer. i do like ron the props guy he's actually genuinely funny and i've encountered crew members like that who were just so excited to be there yeah <laughs> yeah Yeah, he's so excited to be there, so enthusiastic about the show and the opportunity to work with these actors, particularly Brooke, which will come into play later. That's an exaggeration of a real thing that is a funny aspect of working in theater because people have all sorts of varying attitudes towards it from like extremely jaded to extremely enthusiastic. And that's funny. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, we also discovered that JC always has six or seven chorus girls in his dressing room at any given time, because he's that guy. Yep. Again, an obnoxious stereotype, but not entirely inaccurate. <laughs> I mean, I've never yep. worked with... I, 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 I assume that someday, someday I will work on a show where they have sort of a... There's all, these, especially these jukebox, these jukebox musicals often will hire sort of a person who was once much more famous than they are now to be the headliner on their show i'm thinking of a certain um what, i'm thinking of ross petty but i was trying to say it without really revealing ross petty's name a musical starring kurt browning or somebody right. it's just sort of like oh okay they're literally just there to sell tickets and so that's the role that jc plays and i don't buy that these girls are necessarily all the girls in the cast are necessarily fawning all over him all the time but sure whatever and then wardrobe is not doing his job he's like rating the audience's attractiveness in the wing when he's supposed to be doing quote last looks which is yeah like, last you know. looks is also like a film term I yeah think. totally totally definitely never heard that in theater no and then he turns around and sexually assaults an actor which is another like it's <laughs> just so much so much sexual assault in this show um yeah like he just reaches up inside her shirt and grabs her boobs for yeah. no real reason uh, under the pretense of like adjustments yeah yeah so but she's totally into it so like whatever <laughs> yeah, well, I wa- yeah that was really uncomfortable gross. to watch yeah we see the producer Goldmeyer, I believe, is yes. the character's name. Rob Riggle. We can just call him Rob Riggle because okay. <laughs> we see the producer played by Rob Riggle. Rob Riggle doesn't act; he just is yeah. Rob Riggle in every film he's in. Yeah. So we see him backstage, turning from being incredibly enthusiastic towards the actors to expressing a lot of like anger and anxiety towards the stage manager, which is sort of a real thing yeah and... it's a caricature but it's a real it's that yeah 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 but nick's response of i thought they looked decent in rehearsals is not a particularly <laughs> positive or diplomatic thing to say five minutes before the curtain goes up yeah yeah Ugh, i hate it all 
Uh, then, then Topher Grace does the pre-show announcement, the self turn off your cell phones, the show's about to start an announcement himself live over a microphone, which again yeah. on Broadway, not happening. There's a pre-recorded something. I have, I've worked in theaters where the stage manager has read that live over yeah. a microphone, but that's always small theaters. So that was weird. And then he's, and then he starts calling the show. He starts calling the show. Backstage, which is a thing that still sometimes happens, like sometimes stage managers call from the booth, but in opera and sometimes in Broadway, the stage manager will call from backstage. Yeah, it's so weird. So um, I wa- I always watch movies with the closed captioning on. Uh-huh. And uh, before he starts calling the show, some- somebody else over a loudspeaker calls places again. Yes. And that, person is named- that person's name is Waldo, according to closed captioning. Okay, because <laughs> so... there is there is somebody who we don't see, but we do hear paging over the backstage loudspeaker. Yeah, that's Waldo. <laughs> in which case, why did Nick go around in person if this paging is also happening? <laughs> yep. Who talks with him over the headset about a problem that's happening with the lights before the show. I yeah. think it's the same guy because he has like sort of a British accent. Yep. Maybe yep, that's well though. I think stage he's, manager. I think he's the PSM or the stage manager or whatever. Right. So then is Topher Grace and ASM? Who, who are these no, people? Like, and why isn't he PSM wearing black? And one's the stage manager, I guess, but not clear. Yeah, not clear. Yeah. So my notes are just like, who's Waldo? He calls in other places, sort of. Is Topher Grace an ASM? Why isn't he in black? Then he's calling cues, sort of. Can we get a little more smoke? This show is supposed to be terrible, and that's a whole other problem. But like, yes, <laughs> I just whose job is what? Why is Nick even here? He's not doing anything useful. Yeah, and he calls two cues. He calls. I I think he calls a piece of moving scenery, and then he asks for more smoke. Yeah, I was thinking he was counting in because he counts down. So it's either the moving scenery or maybe he's calling a warning for the spot that picks up JC at the beginning of the number. Sure, I buy that. But either way, these are the two cues he calls and then he just walks away from the desk and you never see him call another cue again. What? Yes. What? And the lighting looks weird and bad. Yeah, and then he's cueing actors onto the stage too. Which, like, in a musical, the actors know their cues. They don't need uh, somebody yeah. backstage to tell them when their cue is. Although, I guess these guys are wearing mascot costumes, so maybe they can't see or hear mm. anything that's going on. But, possible. but, yeah, he calls a bunch of actors cues. And then just goes back to the dressing room. And then just wanders leaving away. Leaving the wing. And yeah. that is definitely not something. Like, you'd either have a role backstage or... If you truly had that large stage management team that the stage manager was calling the show and there were ASMs backstage and you had a PSM, the PSM might stay in the office or yeah. in the backstage area, but they wouldn't be nipping backstage to call a couple of cues and then going back to the dressing rooms. <laughs> That's yeah. definitely not a thing. Nick is back to wandering backstage. And of course, because it's opening night... Brooke accidentally gets hit in the head with an oversized chopstick prop that Ron, the overenthusiastic props guy, is carrying, and she gets knocked out, and they have to put in the understudy. It's right. another understudy going on on opening night show. Yeah, and I wonder what this 
production number was that required a big chopstick. I bet it was racist. Yeah. And then Ron does a really racist impression and Topher Grace screams at him. And in that moment, we are all Topher Grace because it was uh, it was really bad. Yeah. And that was another moment where Topher Grace takes responsibility for the accident, even though he didn't cause it. Mm. And that's yes. something that is kind of allied with what stage managers often do. Totally. They don't want somebody else to take the full brunt of the anger, so they'll try to neutralize it and share responsibility. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then Props Ron fesses up and is immediately and promptly fired mid-show. So I guess Props Ron doesn't have much to do because <laughs> he's Yeah, who's going to be carrying the giant chopsticks if Ron's not there? We don't meet any other crew members. Yeah, by all means fire him, but wait until I, he's done this performance, at least. Yeah. Rob Riggle. And then we have Lee, the medic, who shows up, who we've seen once before, also sexually harassing everyone around him, because everybody in this place is disgusting, horrible people. Brooke has cl- what is clearly a very severe concussion. Like, she is incapable of holding her head up. Yeah, she's knocked out, and then even when she wakes up, she's cross-eyed and can't focus and can't string together a sentence. And clearly, this woman needs to go to a hospital. Nobody that's never even suggested. (laughs) Nobody even considers for a second that we might want to take this person to a hospital. Now let's just get the understudy ready. While the show is currently going on. Luckily, Brooke apparently doesn't show up until almost intermission. Which sort of makes sense because Brooke is playing the ghost of one hit ghost of past. one hit hunter's <laughs> past. <laughs> Good God! Oh, it's such a bad show. Okay, and I'm fine with it being a bad show. Let's. I want to be clear. It's it is a bad show. It's meant to be a bad show, and that's fine. Side note: As Rob Riggle is chewing out Nick. I believe this is the time he's chewing out Nick, or it might be another time that he's chewing out He does out it Nick. a million times, yeah. He says something about, do you know how many shows close on opening night? Thank you! I wrote it down. I don't think it is this time, because I specifically wrote that down. I think it's later, but we can talk okay. about it now. I'm just going to put it in now, because, you guessed it, it inspired me to do some research. <laughs> because I'm like, huh. That can't be true. I don't think that's true. So I started looking up how many Broadway shows close on opening night. And according to Playbill, and they only looked at musicals, but 22 Broadway musicals in the past 80 years closed after opening night. 22 in 80 years. 22 in 80 years. It's really not that many. No, and I'm surprised it's that many, frankly. I've never heard of a show closing on opening night. There are other shows that close during previews or close during out-of-town tryouts because, like we talked about in 42nd Street, Broadway shows will often run in another city to kind of work out the problems before they move to Broadway. So sometimes they close at that stage. But in terms of shows that actually close on opening night, there are 22. Huh. Fun fact. Most of them happened in the 70s and 80s. I'm not sure if that's because people were taking more risks on shows that were kind of less of a sure thing. Right. Because some of them, like Blood Red Roses, which was an anti-war musical about the Crimean War, for example, 
do seem like a big risk to take. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a commercial success. Yes. Huh. Yeah. All right. Well, then Rob Riggle has sort of a point, but not really. He sort of has a point, but also there's been one show that closed on opening since the mid-80s. So implying that there's always a danger that a Broadway show will close on opening night is not really accurate. Right. Because even that disastrous Spider-Man ran for a minute, didn't it? Like, yeah. anyway. <laughs> that disastrous Spider-Man, because of course, I went down the rabbit hole of lots of different Broadway flops. Right. And the tricky thing is that so many of the really big name flops actually do run for a while. But because they're so expensive, they're still considered flops because they don't run long enough to make money back. Like, they right. still lose money, even though they've continued quite a while past opening night. Right. Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark had the longest preview run of any Broadway show, at least to that point, with 180-something previews Wow! before it opened. Holy crap. That is absolutely... I would, I would lose my mind having to do previews for that long. I hate previews. Yeah. Me too. Wow. Okay. And they still lost, like, they lost an insane amount of money on that show. They lost an insane amount of money and, like, because it was so expensive. a number of actors were severely injured. <laughs> like, it was yes. bad news. Anyway, yeah. not here at One Hit Wonderland. We're not going to close on opening night. Damn it. So, yeah. So then we go find Chloe because Chloe's the understudy and she's going to go on. And I was really, really irritated that we find Chloe in no makeup with her hair just as, with her hair just down in sweats. When last time we saw her, she was in this full Mozart costume, and presumably she's chorus, so she's going to have another costume to get into. You don't change back into your sweats every time. How much time off does she have between numbers? Like, I was so annoyed by this. She apparently, every single time she comes off stage, she puts her street clothes back on. (sighs) Worst hate. And then the stage manager actively tries to talk her out of going on stage and tries to ruin her life. (laughs) like he's the worst yeah i mean my interpretation although honestly i cared so little about this plot thread (laughs) even though it's sort of supposed to be the unifying arc of the movie right he expresses so much of his own anxiety from his own failed broadway experience yes in a way that is completely discouraging to her and she calls him out on it later yeah no she i like her she like, yeah, she's fine. She tells it as how it is, and she tells him he's being a twat. I don't, which makes the ending all the more infuriating. But yeah, Nick, however, <sighs> do not care for him. No, no. I mean, again, like every once in a while, he'll show something where he's sort of professional and he talks somebody down and he does his job. But he's such a jerk. <laughs> he's such an unpleasant person. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. So they get Chloe into her costume. She goes on, she panics for a second, it's very dramatic, and then she's brilliant. She sings her song. She's brilliant. One thing that I did notice when they were on stage, well, as they were walking to the stage, I noticed there were a bunch of lighting operators or electricians backstage looking like they were adjusting the focus of lights during the show. Yeah. (laughs) Which I was annoyed about. (laughs) Well, maybe they were doing a live gel change? Maybe. But, like, that's not... You're trying to tell me that this Broadway theater doesn't have color-changing lights? Like, please. Yeah. So, explanatory comma, gels are the colored film that go in front of lights. 
Um, they're usually in a little frame and it is for many lights as low tech as you put a physical cutout of a certain color in front of the light. And so in the past, like sometimes crew members do physically change those during the show. But of course, technology has advanced since then, like many decades ago, where there'll be a series of gels on a scroll that you can electronically switch to the correct gel. Yeah, this movie was made in 2017. This is not happening during this show. Yeah, there's also more unreasonable use of film jargon. Like someone says going to crafty, like craft services, theater <sighs> never has craft services. Like no. there might be some circumstances where a theater will order a meal for the company, like under certain touring conditions or work conditions that does happen sometimes, but they definitely don't have craft services. Oh my God. No, they're not. They don't have craft services. They're not. Yeah. The, the show, this, the show's only two hours long. You don't need to stop for a meal break. Like, Anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. One of the things I laughed at in the show within a show was the horrible transition between dialogue and the song starting. So there's a really obvious break and different quality of audio when the dialogue is happening and then someone will start to sing and it will right. completely change. And this is always <laughs> a challenge in musicals. Because there are, there is always breaks and transitions between speaking and singing. Right. But a musical that's well-written, like not just in terms of the words, but in terms of the way it intersects with the music, and with a good sound designer, has ways of smoothing out that transition. Yes. But this musical doesn't. So whether it's the way that the film is handling the recording of dialogue versus the recording of music, or whether it's reflecting that the show within a show has that problem, it is one that I definitely noticed and laughed at. <laughs> I did not collect that at all. What I did notice in the scene is that um, both of the actors, I thought were rigged for flying. So, like it looked to me like they had uh, flying harnesses on. And then they don't fly. Um, yes. So I could only assume it was like a safety harness because they were up. They yeah. Had, they, they were, were on high. raised platforms that were moving, but they did not fly. Right. So I sort of went, oh, okay, well, safety harness, that's something. Somebody paid attention to something. Yeah. Or maybe the actors in the film required safety harnesses and they just didn't bother to take them out <laughs> and post. <laughs> I'm not sure what the intention of that was, but I sort of, I expected them to fly during the scene and they did not. Uh, and then there's just a bunch of you fucked my boyfriend drama between Tay Diggs and Brandy. Yeah. And they this is where they make a bet to see who can fuck the wicked dancer. Xavier is his name, although they always call him Ricky Martin, so whatever. Yeah, that whole section and the like over the top way that the other male chorus dancers who are coded as gay physically grope Xavier really left a bad taste in my mouth. Yep. It's all Speaking about terrible. bad stereotypes of actors, I was like, ugh, that is not good. <laughs> then they sing Mambo number five because we haven't been through enough, apparently. Oh, and at some point in this, JC Chazé demands that what is her name? Oh my god, Chloe, Chloe. be brought to his dressing room at intermission. Right. Which, uh, not something... That is acceptable on any level. 
It's actually not an insane thing for the two leads, if one of them is an understudy, to sneak in some rehearsal during intermission. Like, oh, that's very normal. Totally. That's the And that's the pretext under which he asks for it. But it's right. clearly a request for bring me this woman so I can fuck her in intermission. Like, that's... Yes, that is yeah. the way it's presented based on the way JC has acted so far. Yes. Nick goes in to check on Brooke because she's still so messed up. Why has she not been taken to the hospital? And she asks for medication and this idiot just goes into some bag and is like, I found a bottle of pills and hands her two pills. Like, well, she says they're marked aspirin. Sure. She's got a severe concussion. You don't just give her medication. You don't know what she needs. You're going to kill her. And then, as it turns out, not aspirin, ecstasy, (laughs) because because hijinks. It's like, oh my god, you drugged this woman. So yeah, so she's on E now. Um, but the medic has, can't be there because somebody else turned their ankle, and I was like, uh, "The woman that has been over that is overdosed and has a severe concussion, like an ASM can wrap that ankle. You stay with the woman who's who's like life is in danger. Screw yeah. you, medic." Topher Grace finds props Ron on his way out with his sad little box of possessions and says, "If you come and help me, I'll find a way to get your job back." And brings him in and says. That he's supposed to watch her and make sure she doesn't leave the room instead of calling 911 for this woman. Anne Hayes deserves so much more. And then he gives him his walkie and says, call me if there's a problem. And then, like, now how do you communicate if you can only talk to people through your walkie? Like, this is a terrible idea. Then everybody's up in the rehearsal hall, I guess. There's a rehearsal hall attached to the theater, which, okay, fine. Yeah. And they're all stretching and somebody gets out a massage table to try and hook up with somebody else and oh god with oh god yeah it's so okay the whole idea of this sex competition of like who can seduce this guy fastest is kind of gross but there is a way of handling it which could be funny (laughs) but but the way malcolm is like oh yeah i'm a physical therapist and then starts feeling up on him and puts his hand on his taint which xavier says like it's a funny line but the circumstance is so terrible that i'm like yeah it's horrible it's horrible but yeah i'll just leave that alone because yeah i don't want to say anything more about that yeah then cut back to brooke's dressing room and there's some comedy stuff comedy about her comedy. being and comedy that is based on nobody in this movie has ever had a concussion or seen anyone with a concussion or done ecstasy or seen anybody <laughs> who's done ecstasy. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. But this is like damning with faint praise. But because of how they handled the other sexual content, I was really like, oh, this is like a really potentially mm. gross and dicey situation because she's on ecstasy and Ron the props guy is with her and really likes her like it's kind of implied he's kind of starstruck or has a crush on her and oh I'm yeah like, they could oh, have done God. horrible things I was like didn't. very worried about how this was going to happen and there is some like she kind of feels his torso and says oh I love your shape but I was relieved at how not terrible it was because it really could have gone to a place that would have made me extremely uncomfortable and totally it, yeah, it handled it as 
tactfully as this movie could, I guess. Yes. Because we don't have time for another sexual assault storyline because Brooke escapes. She escapes the dressing room and this is how Nick winds up on stage. (laughs) Somehow she's gotten away, so far away from everybody in the 30 seconds since she ran out of the dressing room that uh, nobody can find her. They search all over the place and then they find her downstairs under the stage. They have an elevator that goes up through a trap door in the stage. And she has managed to get in the elevator, preventing another actor from making his cue. And so there's a scuffle. Nick winds up in the elevator and he comes up on stage. Yeah. And the whole show stops. (laughs) Everything stops. One, that was the only moment to this point in the movie that I laughed. Right. Was when he, in his hoodie, is suddenly thrust into the middle of this musical number. Right. But two, the orchestra almost immediately stops playing. Yeah. And that is not a thing that usually happens. No. No, there'd have to be, like, an explosion for the orchestra to just all stop playing all at once. Yes. And then he exits just so gracefully. Like, he's just so... Like, he falls down and he, like, stumbles. Like, I'm just like, oh my god, just get off stage. This is not... And everybody's staring at him. The audience and is silent. And the actors silent. also wouldn't stop to stare. Like, no. honestly, if something like this did happen during a show... They would all be laughing their asses off, but they keep dancing. Yeah, they would keep dancing. The music would keep playing because there's nothing... Like, I guess whoever was supposed to come up there, maybe... Like, maybe what happens afterwards depends on who's supposed to come up through that elevator, actually coming up through that elevator. But they would find a way. Like, someone would just repeat a verse. Yeah. And the, sh- the like, number would conclude. Like, They'd that's how it, it actually out. works. Yeah, but as it is, he, like clatters off stage to dead silence and everybody's staring at him and then jc chazé makes the like the lamest cover like he's like oh anything can happen and that like he's just like shut up this is terrible (laughs) and it's intermission that makes me laugh a little bit that something that disastrous happened right at intermission (laughs) yeah and the audience is bewildered and wanders out (laughs) into the lobby to get a drink going what did i just see which I'm a little bit surprised when you cut back after intermission that they have any audience left, that the whole place hasn't left. Because <laughs> I would have left at intermission. This is yeah. a terrible show. It's a terrible show. I would also have left during intermission. Which I've only done once before. But I have done that once before. I have. I once sat next to a poor old lady who was obviously a little bit demented. And I w- it was a production of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And intermission came happened and she thought it was over. And I tried to explain to her that there was more, that we were just taking a break and there was more, but then after intermission, she was gone. (laughs) I'm still a little, I worry about that lady because I don't know why she was alone at the theater. She did not understand what was going on. Anyway, um, have I ever left a show at intermission? I don't, I've wanted to desperately, but it was always I had been given comps or something and I had to stay because people would know if I left. Anyway. This was also a show that I had comps for, but yeah. yeah, at a certain point. (laughs) <laughs> at a certain point uh justin and i were just like you know we're gonna be happier if we spend the next hour drinking at the bar down the street <laughs> and then maybe we'll come back to say hi to the people we know and right. that's what we did that's do not idea. regret it good call so there's obviously a big hubbub at intermission because 
everybody thinks he's trying to sabotage the show on purpose now. Like, people are really, like, which is insane. Which, like, yeah, that makes no sense. Like, yeah. I understand his behavior has been extremely bizarre and non-professional, but <laughs> there's no way people would ex- suspect that. People are really excited about how great Chloe the understudy's performance is, though, which is true and, like, a real thing. But, yeah. you know, people yeah, are and she's, excited she's... about that. She's killing it. Other than that yeah. pause at the beginning where she completely panicked when she walked on stage and there was dead silence and that was, you know, stupid movie trope, but she's doing okay. Yep. She's having a good time. She does go to JC's dressing room. Yes. But also what happens at intermission is Brandy asks Xavier, <sighs> the Ricky Martin dance sub to come and help her with a quick change and she calls it a quick change about 50 times and if it's happening at intermission it's not a quick change brandy (laughs) jesus christ (laughs) if you have 15 minutes to do it not a quick change stop calling it a quick change yeah who are you and then it's another sexual assault and she makes him grab her breasts which are enormous and he finds a lump and i don't know why that's funny like why is that a joke that we put into this yeah. But now Brandy has breast cancer? Like, why is that a thing? Who cares? Well, she says she says later that it's benign. I she doesn't she know? She's been to a doctor in the last but like, 10 minutes? I guess that resolves the, like, uncomfortable tension of raising the specter of breast cancer in the middle of this comedy, I guess. Yeah, she has a benign know. fibroid tumor in her breast. Great. Who cares? This was not necessary. Um, uh, yeah, so... Topher shows up at JC's dressing room under the pretense of giving him notes about an entrance that he has missed in the past. Uh, that notes, notes in intermission is not cool. Don't do that. Yep. And I just wrote, the bassist needs to go to rehab. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Anyway. Again, my least favorite aspect of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> I like the acknowledgement when we go into see JC's dressing room that it is incredibly weird to have photos of yourself all around your dressing room, which is a trope that's appeared in previous movies. But in this case, they really dial it up to 11. He has a cardboard cutout of himself in his dressing room, which seems, I mean, it's weird, but it's part of his over-the-top characterization. Yeah, and it's vaguely funny. Yeah. Um, And then he tries to to seduce Chloe by singing She's Like the Wind, and she does not go for it, and I think that's really funny. Is that a known song? (laughs) Yeah, it's from Dirty Dancing. Patrick Swayze sang it in okay. Dirty Dancing. It's like a whole thing. Because I didn't recognize it, and I'm like, did he write this song? Like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah, if you don't know the reference, then that's not. I totally don't. Stupider. Yeah, but I, I do. I really love that Chloe. Like, I like Chloe. I like her. She's like, this I like is her too. stupid. You're an idiot. Stop. In the conversation that she does have with JC even though it's very movie-ish, it's at least seems sort of interesting and based in real life when she's like, is this something that works for you? And like, in a way, calls him on his shit. And he responds in actually like a pretty mature and thoughtful way. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. for For the constraints of this kind of movie and this character in a way that I'm like, oh, that's actually... A moment that I didn't hate. There you go. <laughs> That's what we're striving for now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also like that this is the first movie that we have done so far, and we're five movies in, I think, 
where there's no subplot of a relationship between a producer and a female star. This oh, is the yeah. first one. Yeah, there's no weird power imbalance, really. I mean, a stage manager and an actor sometimes has some weirdness to it, but it's not like... Yeah, I was going to ask you what you thought about that, about a stage manager dating someone in a show they're working on. Uh, How do you feel about that? Been on shows where it's happened. Um, yep, me too. I mean, if people are mature about it and can keep it professional, that's not. I don't see it as being a huge problem. Um, yeah. I don't like showmances as a general rule. I think they're childish and gross. Like, just wait till the show's over, till you're not working together, and then get together if you want. I think that's, but that's not specific to the people and who, what their roles are. Yeah, the sort of role and authority that a stage manager has varies so much depending on the show and the atmosphere and the way people work together. Like, there's some mm-hmm. shows where I feel like the power imbalance between an actor and a stage manager isn't that big, but then there's other shows where I feel it is really big. Right. So it's, yeah, so I have, like, mixed feelings about it because I think depending on the show, it feels very different to me. But yes, in general, as with all workplaces, starting a relationship in the workplace is a dicey proposition that can definitely lead to problems. Right. As we see in this show, where part of what makes Nick so unlikable is his weird attitude towards Chloe now that yeah. they're not together. Like, oof, ick. Yeah, it's all icky. Yeah. Speaking of icky, then we have the big final, like the big seduction production number where they're Tay Diggs and What's-Her-Face are trying to hook up with Xavier and it's a, a like I gotta say I'm never opposed to a dance-off yes and it's not a terrible dance-off I don't know how these two actors then recruited all the rest of the chorus to join them in their weird <laughs> dance-off to win the love of random dancer but they all do and it's it, it was somewhat fun to watch and in the end, Xavier picks Tay Diggs. Good choice. I say, if, if you have the chance to sleep with Tay Diggs, sleep with Tay Diggs. That's how I feel about that. <laughs> I was also so thrilled to see a dance-off. Love that. Seeing a musical theater interpretation of whatever that song is, You and Me, Baby Ain't Nothing But Mammals, uh, whatever that's called. I'm like, oof, yeah. why yeah. that song? But also <laughs> very funny. Yeah, yeah. And then it's ruined at the end because Nick comes in and says, we're back in 30 seconds getting costume. Terrifying. <laughs> That's a problem. None yep. of them are in costume. 30 so seconds terrifying. to act two. After watching this production number, I had this sneaking concern that <laughs> that the movie was making the show within a show look bad so that it would make their production numbers look better. That's a conspiracy theory I can get behind. I, <laughs> I can get behind right. that. But it is genuinely, you know, it's genuinely fun. They're good dancers. It's yeah. fine, I guess. Yeah. And then I think I just wrote down a quote and I don't know what the context is of it now two days later. Power up the screen machine? <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know what that was. What is a What? Do they mean a metaphorical machine or an actual machine? No idea. I think Topher says it into his walkie. Power up the screen machine. I want to know what that is. (laughs) How that works. 
Oh. And who needs to power it up? I'm I'm confused <laughs> by all of it. But I love it. Act 2 is a lot less eventful. I just wrote some comments about how the show needs to decide whether it's It's a Wonderful Life or a Christmas Carol. Um, <laughs> but it's reaching, but it's it's sure reaching Topher. There's a lot of things about following your dreams and... <laughs> Like a lot of, it's a good thing the writer of this play knew the struggle that the stage manager was going through, so that they could write specifically to his concerns. Oh, Waldo, the stage manager, at some point pages. That's a wrap on the ghost. Ten minutes to curtain call. How is that a page? Who pages that? <laughs> yeah, you would definitely page ten minutes to curtain call, but that's a wrap on the ghost. Not nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares that the ghost. And they is all done. know the show. Like yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's more film stuff creeping in, right? Like that's definitely more film stuff. Whatever. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, Brooke, for no reason, fucks with Chloe a little bit with some aging starlet bullshit that doesn't matter. Yeah. Brooke says tonight's the best it's gonna get, and there is something sort of touching and about that because you know theater is a difficult business and i get it but it feels a little pro forma it is no match for the incredible aging star and understudy conversation in 42nd street so after watching that i'm like this is not good no she's just bitter like brooke is just old and bitter and angry that her career is not the way that she wants it to be uh but hey rob riggle you don't get to fire the lead just because the understudy was better that's not how that goes he just announces, oh, you're fantastic. I'm going to fire Brooke tomorrow. What? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. During no. the show, backstage outside of Brooke's dressing room. Yeah. Great. Oof. This is what makes Chloe decide to quit the show because she's all disillusioned now. Yeah, that was a really quick turnaround for Yeah, a real Chloe. quick turnaround. And again, like, guys, professionalism. Like, at least give some notice. What are you, like, you can't just, I'm leaving the show and I'm never coming back. Because is she leaving the business? I hope so. Yes, not just because leaving the show. She's packing up her bag and she says, I'm leaving New York for good. Great. I hope you have a backup plan. Wow, that's a huge <laughs> decision. I mean, Nick says you're not going to stay for your curtain call. So at least she has no more scenes. Like, presumably right. she's just dipping out before her curtain call. Which well, is yeah, because still... that's a wrap on the ghost. Right. <laughs> Waldo paged it. <laughs> Right. Which is still like a huge faux pas. You don't do yeah. that. Just stick around and have your curtain call. What is the deal? It's just, it's weird. But before we get to the big, this is sort of the, the emotional climax of the show. Before we get to that point, um, we do have a little aside with Brandy and Tay Diggs. Oh, Because yeah. she's sad because the dude didn't want to sleep with her. And then turns out he was gay. He was never bi anyway. He She didn't have a shot with him. And this was all for show. And... So he invites her to join them in a threesome. And I'm like, well, if you're both gay and neither of you are attracted to her, why would you want her in a threesome with you? Yeah, that's the worst outcome of that situation. Yeah, (laughs) but the other thing is that she feels so much better because somebody thinks she's hot enough to be in a threesome. Her life is okay now. Everything's fine. Oh my god, I hate everything. I'm so angry. I hate it. Maybe I spoke too fast in saying that the druggy bass player was my least favorite subplot because <laughs> this might actually be my least favorite subplot, although at least it had a dance number. The druggy thing is it's less a subplot and more of just a running gag, and it's stupid, and you can ignore it. This take it eats up time and made me feel like I needed to take a shower. It was not okay. 
Oh, we do have a moment of Alex, our, our easily stressed out ASM, losing her shit and screaming at everybody for kind of no reason. Just to show that she has a character arc, I guess. Yeah, I guess she, like, is able to reclaim her voice by yelling at people, which is not okay. Like, you know, yeah. it's good to feel like you can be the person who can take charge and say that people need to do their job even though they're feeling stressed and they're having some difficulties, but yelling is not the right outcome for that circumstance. Yeah. 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 Chloe and Nick have a fight. Nick storms out into the alley. The show is still happening. How are you leaving <laughs> the building? I just yeah. And Tay Diggs is out there. I guess I I guess the rest of the show is just J C Chazé by himself. <laughs> There's nobody on stage. <laughs> and they have a they have a heart to heart outside. And then Nick says, "I fuck everything up." And I said, and I wrote, "Well, you're certainly fucking this up." <laughs> Whatever's yeah. going on here tonight, you're certainly fucking up. You're terrible at your job. And yep. then Tay Diggs reads him for filth and it's awesome. Hooray. Because <laughs> he's the worst. Yeah. Uh, and then he takes off his headset, which I guess he brought from home. So I guess it belongs to him. So I'm less annoyed that he's ruining <laughs> theater property. Yeah. Because he takes off his headset and throws it <laughs> and his walkie and throws them against the wall. And you see them break. Like, he shatters them. (laughs) And then he makes a split decision. He goes back into the theater, and he walks past everybody and walks out onto the stage in the middle of a number and shoves J.C. Chassé aside and his sad little saxophone. And the show stops again. Yeah. (sighs) It made me actually think fondly of stage fright. And how they handled having weird interruptions. Like, even that was more realistic in the way that the orchestra would handle something weird happening on stage. Quick, just play something. Yeah, no, everybody just stops all the time. And then he starts a cappella to sing that Mr. Big song, I'm the one who wants to be with you, extremely badly. He sings yeah. it very, very badly. And we're supposed to believe that this guy, this guy was a rising star on Broadway and he, and he had a bad experience and he quit acting and singing in musical theater. This yeah. guy. Because it's so, it's so bad that at one point, some MVP in the pit playing a brass instrument of some kind, it's not a tuba, but, <laughs> but, but like plays a womp womp. And that was the only time in the film that I laughed out loud. Because <laughs> it was great. It's like, somebody give that guy a medal. Yeah. It's a difficult thing to do. They're trying to portray that he is starts nervously and then finds his stride and is able to like re-embrace his love of singing and love of Chloe and return to the Broadway stage all in one moment. You can be nervous and quiet and still sing the correct notes. Yeah. Like, why? who hired Topher Grace for this? Like, hire somebody who can sing one song. Like, yeah. all, he only has to sing the one song. And even once he gets his confidence up, what, he's still not good. He still can't sing. Part that sounds good about his singing later in the number is that the rest of the singers on stage start singing backup for him at these harmonies and the orchestra starts playing. Right. Which, which like, they all know this song? <laughs> yeah, Exactly. <laughs> I mean, maybe they do. Maybe this song, I have to assume this song is, because it's a one-hit wonder, so maybe it's part of the show. Right. Maybe he just takes oh. over the finale. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't okay. know why I'm feeling generous at this point, but I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that he just takes over the finale. Although there is no saxophone in uh, right. What He Wants to Be With You, so why J.C. Chazé is holding a saxophone, I don't know. <laughs> I love that you've come up with a sort of plausible reason for that moment. You know what? Sometimes you just have to justify the thing that you're giving. Totally. And I know that is a thing that happens in musicals all the time, right? That, like, someone right. starts singing and everyone joins in in a miraculous way that is not possible in real life. Yeah. But because this movie hasn't established itself as that kind of musical, it really makes it hard to suspend your disbelief. Yes. And then he walks in, and then uh, Chloe's on her way out, and she hears it. Yeah. Although, I don't know how, because this theater is so soundproof that you can't hear people having full production numbers in the dressing room <laughs> on stage. And yet, things that are happening on stage, she can hear in the lobby, but whatever. Um, and she walks in through the house. He goes to meet her out in the house. The follow spot operator knows to follow them into the house. The audience... Loves it. They're on their feet and they're clapping yep. along. They're clapping along. This song along. is not an appropriate song to clap along to. <laughs> it's not a good clapping song. Not a good clapping song. The audience isn't clapping particularly well, which is a real thing. Like, it is hard for a big group of people to accurately clap along with a song, which is something that comes up whenever you want the audience to clap along with something. Yeah. I love, the song has like a little bit of a, like it has a little bit of a retard at the end where it like, yeah. <laughs> like slows down and the audience there's there's a lot of like awkward slowing down of clapping and that's very that was very funny and i don't think intentional anyway so everybody loves it everybody loves it the audience loves it rob riggle loves it why does the producer love this i don't know why it's bad why does anybody love this does the audience really believe this is happening in the show exactly it's like stage fright yeah like are they like, like this this is like uh Brechtian disruption of <laughs> the fourth wall of theater. They did foreshadow it. They did have that moment at the end of Act One where this guy showed up out of nowhere. It's so the perfect he, bookend. He's, he's Chekhov's stage manager. He shows up for the first <laughs> act and then he goes off at the end. Oh man. Anyway, that's the end. And that's the immediately end. after we go to black, I threw my notebook across the room fed up and angry and frustrated by this whole yeah. thing and then there's two minutes of bloopers that are also not funny like They're i was painful. just like full i know i was like bloopers are always a, like bloopers win bloopers always win they're always funny and these are not funny but still more entertaining than huge swaths of the movie i guess yeah i was eagerly anticipating seeing the credits because i was hoping that it would explain what job nick was supposed to have like maybe it would have what his t- job title was it did not me too. It just said and Topher Grace playing Nick, and I'm like, oh, it's not helpful. Yeah, I, I had a vague memory of the first time I saw this movie watching the credits, and that was how I knew he was the stage manager. But then I watched the credits, and it just says Nick, so I don't know where I got this idea. Anyway, yeah. it doesn't matter. It's a terrible movie. It's a terrible movie. It's worse. It's the worst one we've seen, and Stage Fright was awful. Yeah, Stage Fright was truly terrible. Yeah, it's difficult because I think this is a worse movie than Stage Fright, but I disliked Stage Fright more because, like, I wasn't into the gore stuff, but that's my own thing. Even though I think that Opening Night is probably a worse movie. Yeah, I I loathe this movie. (laughs) It also has fewer excuses to me. Like, Stage Fright is a quasi-low-budget filmed in Canada, not to insult things filmed in Canada, but you know what I mean. 
movie where like I actually as we talked about know some of the people in the cast whereas this is a movie with some prominent stars and a huge budget behind it and it is not good it's bad it's flat out terrible so sad to leave it on that note yeah what's the lesson what's the lesson we've learned oh god this was one where I had a real difficulty coming up with a lesson because it's just a parade of things not to do. Yeah. Well, my I think the big lesson is... I We haven't really addressed this either. Oh my god, there's so much more to talk about. It just never ends. <laughs> I just... It's infuriating to me that they show this as failed actor becomes stage manager because that's what you do. Like, I just... Oh yeah, that's terrible. It's in, it's disgusting. It's like that's an, we're it's insulting to stage management. Yep. That's not we're not a backup choice for people who can't make it as actors. Like that's it it requires an actual skill set and it's that was irritating to me. So I think the lesson to learn in this is if you fail at acting, change careers entirely. Get out of the business. Yes. <laughs> if you don't want to be an actor anymore, then go away. Especially if you hate go away. musicals. <laughs> The lesson is, I forgot everything I said, the lesson is go away. Go away from this movie. (laughs) Yeah. This has been Chewing Scenery with Sandy Becker and Katerina Sekirko. Next time, we'll be doing our first TV show. We'll be doing two episodes of The Simpsons, A Streetcar Named Marge, and The Star of Backstage. Thank you to Ketza for our theme music, and you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.